Hi, I'm Grant Speed, and this is the Interim Leader Podcast brought to you by Olgers Interim, the UK's leading provider of interim management services. Today, I'm joined by the head of our social housing practice, Suresh Lal, to discuss the quite radical changes the social housing sector is undergoing and what these changes mean for providers across the UK. Suresh is a seasoned professional when it comes to social housing, and he's spent the last 12 years working with almost all of the major providers in the sector, as well as the regulatory bodies such as Homes England and, of course, the regulator of social housing. Suresh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. When it comes to social housing, the construction of new homes um, is pretty consistent on both political and press agendas. And there's a definite lack of political will and investment as previously being cited as the main reason for there not being enough homes. I've noticed over the last 12 months that the sector's kind of seen an increased focus as well as an increased level of funding, specifically by government. What sort of impact is this investment having? Is, and is it actually starting to bear fruit yet? It is. Um, so... I've literally just got back from a housing finance conference in Liverpool where these were all points on the agenda. And if you think about, to, to start with your political points, um, I don't think I've ever seen housing so far up the agenda uh, in terms of vote winning. It's, it's now a very hot topic for all of the parties to consider. I think it's been a change from previous political standpoints. And I think what we're seeing now is a government that understands we need to try and take some of the red tape out. We need to try and help with investment. We need to try and help with fundraising to allow teams to build. Um, other teams have, have gone out and done their own, actually. They've gone out and got their own credit ratings. They've gone to banks. Uh, they've been doing that for many, many years. And it's it's proven to be quite a powerful tool. Um, and we're, we're seeing definitely an, up, an uptake and an increase in delivery of new homes. I think there's, there's, there's two things that are, are starting to come a bit of, become a bit of a concern for teams. One is the, the talent that they have to deliver the building of new homes. And how do they build all these new homes? So we've started to, it's been, a, I think probably it's been in the pipeline for about two years now, the increase of modular homes. So factories have been uh, built and designed to get new homes built. Um, LNG have a huge factory up in the, up the north. Uh, teams have their own factories, so Swan Housing, um, Accord Housing in the Midlands. We, we're starting to see those teams now starting to, to deliver homes on behalf of other teams. That's really interesting. Okay, so, so you know, post Second World War, the prefab um, came into uh, use, and, yeah. and, and some of them are you know, still around and still standing today. Yeah. So, you know, if we look now about modular house building within your sector that you operate in, is it a short-term fix or is this a much longer-term solution? I think that's a really difficult question to answer because right now there's not the uptake in modular homes. I think certainly in Britain we have we are so used to. What do you mean by the uptake? So what we mean is in terms of the amount of demand yeah. for these factories to produce houses. Okay. So at the moment, those factories need to be to be breaking even or however they um, look at the, 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 the metrics in terms of whether they're good, bad or indifferent. Yeah. We need to be delivering around about eight to 10,000 homes coming out of those factories. Okay. Right now, I think that pipeline's probably about 3,000. Annually, right? Yes. Yeah. 
Um, and that's just not enough. So the, I think part of that reason is the there's a bit of a hesitation around the teams seeing the benefit of what they want. And some of that, from what I'm hearing, is that the, the, factory, the, the OMC factories can't deliver the bespoke packages that teams want. The finances, when they're drilling down, don't quite make the sense that people want, but that will change for sure. As, as the sector gets more used to it, as we need to build up the, the demand and the supply, uh, well, the demand's there, the supply needs to, to, to increase. It's really different to other teams and other, other countries. So if you look at Japan, um, Toyota have a house building factory. So they, yeah, exactly, the car maker. So they build houses on the basis of, we're only expecting a house to last 30 years. We will have a natural event that wipes out a whole load of houses every 30 years. So let's not design them to be lasting for 150 years. So interesting, I heard only a few weeks ago from, from someone who'd lived a long time in Japan, is that, it, that actually it's the land that's expensive. Yeah. Your house itself, the moment you buy it, starts depreciating, which is a very different concept, obviously, Completely. to what we're used to here. So, and Toyota, if you think about the car manufacturing side of things, everything's the, the just-in-time model. So everything's built to a certain spec, sure. et cetera, et cetera. And the way they consider it, and Panasonic are also starting to think about I think they might even have now a house building factory. On the basis of, if we can do electronics, and in the car industry we've got door handles, you've got wing mirrors, whatever it may be, well, that's the same as taps and door handles sure. in a house. So the concept's the same. The difference is the attitude towards the house building. Again, we can, we can look at certain places in Europe, um, you know, in, in Holland, there was a scheme that went horribly wrong, but you could understand the concept behind it. There was a, people were trying to build houses on barges and boats. Right. Certainly, because obviously a lot of water there. So the finances behind it went wrong, but you can, you can see how innovative some people are starting to become. Whether we will get to that stage, I genuinely can't say right now. I think it's, I think it's tough to say you'll find new homes or new development areas which are completely modular built. Okay, that's interesting, because if you go back, and again, I take you back to the Second World War, at the end of the Second World War, it was envisaged, I think by Churchill, that half a million prefab houses would be built. Yep. I'm not sure it was quite that many in the end. Um, but I think, you know, they, they, were, they were there to last for 10 years, these, these prefabs, and I'm sure technology has moved on. Mm -hmm. And actually, testament to some of those prefab houses that some of them still stand today, so look, is it a short-term fix of, okay, we want modular houses for the next 10 years, or is it actually we want a modular style of building houses that will last you know, forever? I think that comes down to the construction. If you're building something out of a, a fabric which will last 50 years, and whether that's there for bricks and mortar, whatever it may be, you could argue that, that is the case. It's just a faster way of building the properties that we need. In your sector, then, and this is mm. this is sort of the question that I, I'm, I'm aiming to get at. Yeah. This this change in construction, this change in building and outlook, is this changing the experience and the requirements from a people perspective that the providers are looking for now? Absolutely. There's a there's a whole new area that's starting to open up. Uh, and it's around, well, if you think about just the factories themselves, we therefore need people to go and run the factories. And these are manufacturing plants, for so to speak. You can argue that you need people to 
from a, a, a corporate services perspective, understand who they're selling them to. So what we're seeing is a number of individuals from our sector, and I say our sector, it's the housing world in general, going across to run the factories uh, or going across to run the setup and the, the selling of MMC build. What we're then seeing though is to produce and construct the properties themselves, we might need somebody from a manufacturing background, a factory setting background, and that could be of any type, whether that's you're working in an electric, electronics warehouse, whether you're in the construction world itself right now, and there's different types. So you've got commercial builders, the, the maces of this world, the AME, whoever it may be, could they come across and do residential build, because we're, we're building houses, flats, units, whatever we want to call them. Um, that will change in terms of the types of people we then need to, to, to go and get for individuals, for yeah. teams. And interesting, if you're doing that, then actually if you're building from a modular space, and you, you mentioned I think it was Swan that are building yeah. their own, creating their own factories, you need that skill set around people that can run the warehouses and, and build and design the, these projects. Uh, have the changes in the sector had an impact on any other area of senior talent acquisition? I can say yes. I think um, if we look at the chief executive space, there's been a a change over the last 12 months. It's been started by a number of, of chief executives who have recently retired, and those in, individuals were stalwarts of the sector. They, they've been around for a very long time. They were seen as ambassadors of the sector. They spent a, a lot of time on the circuit at conferences talking about um, the sector at large and left the day-to-day -day running of their organizations to very, very experienced and very good executive teams. As those individuals have retired, that those execs are now stepping up into the chief executive post. What we're then seeing from a talent perspective is those individuals are slightly closer to the business than we've seen before. And what I mean by that is, certainly in the interim market, um, we used to have a fad every year. And what I mean by that is one year, finance would dominate. We'd have lots of finance interim roles, or we'd have lots of construction interim roles. After the, the tragedy of Grenfell, we had lots of compliance and asset management related roles. In the last 18 months, it's been far more varied. Um, so finance and, and construction development still definitely the, the largest parts of my portfolio, but that's been tempered by individuals saying, yes, but if I ramp up the skills in those areas, that will have an impact on other parts of my business because we still have to maintain, look after, manage the individuals who are in those homes. So we need to ramp up the operation side of the business to match that. Underneath all of those things, you've got IT systems. You know, they, they have to be upgraded, brought up to speed to allow individuals or, or every individual in the business to deliver what they now need to do. So we're seeing that the sector's changing in terms of there's much more of a need of talent to come in where we get them from is interesting because that's obviously starting to differ as well. We've talked before, Suresh, mm. about you know, you've seen an increase in the number of COOs yeah. within this sector. Yeah. Why is that? Difficult to pinpoint a, a specific reason, but the, the COO post itself didn't exist about four or five years ago. One or two teams may have had a COO post. Okay. Um, personally, I think it's because our teams uh, and organizations are reflecting a more commercial framework or frame within themselves. Mm. So you've got a chief executive, you've got a CFO. Again, the CFO title itself didn't really exist about four or five years ago. We're seeing a lot more of those uh, 
roles and, and badges coming through now. The COO one's really interesting because what we're starting to see is two or three areas being combined under one operational lead, i.e. the COO. And what that gives is greater, much greater clarity around the delivery of service to residents or customers um, and, and the whole end-to-end -end service that we're offering them. So we're managing the property, so we're repairing and maintaining it. If you have a leaky roof, whatever it may be, that falls under the COO's remit. If we're delivering a, a new interface for the customer to interact with us, a new contact center, telephone numbers, internet, however that may be, again, that remit falls under the COO. So there is slightly more control over how the organization is interacting with the residents and the ability to manage that relationship. That's really interesting. I'm going to come back actually uh, later to the, um, the interaction mm. between the, the is formerly the tenant, I guess. Yeah, yeah. We used to. I think we used to call them tenants. Um, and now, 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 what's the correct term? What should I use? I don't know, because some teams will say we need to treat them like customers because they have choice. Mm -hmm. um, others will say, hang on, we've spoken to our customers, and they don't want to be called a customer. They want to be called a resident. Their viewpoint being, when they think of being a customer. You go on to Amazon or you go on to or you go to John Lewis and you buy something and that's kind of your relationship done. That's not the case in a house. Well in that case, Suresh, I'm gonna use resident if I may. Yeah, yeah sure. So I'm gonna yeah, come yeah. back to that shortly. But before I do that, I, I just wanted to get a sense of um, you know, the, the sector's building what, how many social homes a year? I mean what's the kind of We're circa hundred and ten thousand a year, yeah. there thereabouts. And and is that I wanted to know is that in pockets or is that spread pretty evenly or regionally across the UK? I think that's, there's been a historical change in that. If, if I think back, certainly over the last two to three years, possibly even a bit further back, the vast majority of those properties would have been uh, built uh, and delivered in the southeast. The London area, the London regions, down to kind of Brighton, up to kind of Oxford, has been a hotbed for building because the, the land values are good. The return on your investment is pretty good, um, and the teams that are are located within that space have the finances to go and to go and build. If you start to go past, I'd say, kind of Stafford, that kind of area, and North, the land values and the asset values weren't quite the same. So the the flip was that they would build less, but they would have much more focus on the customer or the resident themselves. So we used to see a bit of a difference. What's changing now? Um, so recent kind of economic reports and, and um, economists have pointed to London flatlining in terms of property prices. Uh, there's a very, very small single digit growth in the southeast. But you look at the Northern Knights, the Manchesters, the Leeds, the Liverpools, they're starting to be the places that you want to invest in. So if you and I were going to go and buy something, you want to go and buy a small flat to, to invest in, you want to go and do it further north. And that's where they start, we'll start to see that flip over. Coming back to what we were saying about the modular build, if that's a more cost-effective way to build something and you can build it up in the north, so the cost to, to purchase the property is less, you can get a better return on it, you'll start to see a lot more being done around Manchester, in and around the Midlands, in and around the northeast and the northwest. Let me bring you back because I, yeah. I want to touch on now on this point about communication with the, the residents themselves. Yeah. And how that's changed within these organisations? It's again, we've we've seen a marked difference in the last few years around 
the thought process behind the customer. And what I mean by that is, previously, teams would look at the resident, customer, tenant, whatever that, that sound was, as almost a parent-to-child relationship. I know best. This is how I think you need to interact with us. This is right. what I think you need. Yeah. Uh, and this is what we'll deliver you. Now that's changed too. And I think some of that is, again, what we talked about, the onset of some of the individuals that have come into the sector. Um, it's more of a, an adult-to-adult relationship. Well, before we start implementing a new system, a new contact center, a new way of interaction, let's ask the residents what they want. Okay. And most of them will just say, I just want you to fix my stuff that's broken. That's pretty much it. If we need you, we want you to be there on time and we want you to deliver. Fine. So some teams are thinking of that in terms of a digital capacity. Can people just go online and click on an app or whatever it may be that I have an electrical problem, I have a boiler problem, whatever it is. That allows a much simpler access and relationship. A sort of self-service, look, I need my boiler fixing, they log onto an app, these are the times yep. that you can pick to have it done and yep. so on. And, yeah. Like you say, it's shopping, you pick your time, your date, and somebody comes out to deliver it. What that's meaning or, or is... Any other supermarket. Or, or any other there supermarket. Are other options. There are other <laughs> options. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's changing the interactions that we have. Are there, I'm just curious now, mm-hmm. are there any organisations where actually they're rating that service. I'm thinking, you know, you, you know there are lots of uh, reviews that you mm. can put on on these apps and certain different things across retail and so on and services. Is that feedback coming back from the residents of what was the service like? Absolutely. So we have KPIs and metrics around customer satisfaction. So this is, is constantly measured in terms of how the customer, the residents, feels about the service they're being delivered. Interestingly, recently, we've started to see teams who are trying to move to a wholly digital approach. So they are piloting schemes or they're piloting parts of their organization which are completely digital. Mm. Your contract, your interaction with the organization when you purchase your property or when you're, you're letting your property is completely done online. There is no interaction with the team whatsoever. Some teams are saying they're getting 100% customer service satisfaction out of that. There's a team, Richmond Housing Partnership, which leads the way in terms of the digital interaction. Now, being fair to the organization and being fair to everybody else, I'm not sure that the, that the entire sector could ever go 100% digital. Well, there must be residents who, who don't want to, who struggle from a um, you know, vulnerable residence, yeah. who actually find using the digital space quite, quite challenging. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've got those individuals. The, the biggest one for me, the biggest area of concern for me in that space is antisocial behaviour. And you've got a noisy neighbour or somebody who's making a nuisance of whatever kind. I don't think that is a f- piece of feedback you want to just fill in digitally, a form. That is a conversation you want to have over a cup of tea, face to face. What's the problem? How can we help? There needs to be some human empathy there because that could be a really serious problem. Sure. So I'm not sure that everybody can go down that route. I think we're definitely moving towards a 60, 70% of a digital interaction, because that saves us a whole load of money. But could we ever get to the stage where the entire sector goes wholly digital, like like Amazon or something like that? I don't think that's possible. Even Amazon, you can pick up the phone and speak with people. Well, there you go. Um, I think then that you've got a different skill set coming in. Absolutely. Customer engagement, people with digital skills and so on. 
I, I'm curious to know if, if, you know, we've talked about some retailers here, mm. but, but you're seeing that demand. Retail's in a slump. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think everyone's publicly aware of that. Uh, are you seeing people going from the retail space across into social housing? That, that's one of the best areas for me to go and get people from. So these individuals have lived a life of, of customer interaction. They are in the world of omnichannel, and we're only just reaching out from a digital perspective. Those individuals can come across with a ready set mind of, this is what we need to do. And most of them will tell me, certainly the interims that we're bringing across, we're probably about four or five years behind the retail sector. You mentioned there that that market's a difficult space for those individuals to get roles. I'm quite happy to bring them into my space because there's lots for us to do. And, and most teams will want those individuals to support and help them on a journey that we're all, we're all heading for. So bring that customer engagement yeah. experience, that digital expertise to the residents yeah. for efficiencies and so on. What about trends separately towards you know, well, more commercialization? I don't think it is separate, it's part of that same discussion. Yeah, it is. I think the finance area of housing has probably been the leader of this. We've been bringing in interns from lots of different backgrounds into to housing because with finance, numbers are numbers, they don't change. Yeah. How you view them and the reporting that we have to do in, in housing there's some regulatory reports that we have to fill in, et cetera, et cetera. For somebody who's a seasoned financial professional, you can adapt to that wherever you are. What they add to us is a level of scrutiny, process, ability that perhaps we haven't seen before. Mm. And that's that's been really powerful, especially with all the funding that we've had to go and get. We've never had to do credit ratings before. So people who understand the conversation that needs to happen with Fitch, Standard & Poor's, whoever it may be, um, who understand what the banks are going to want to hear when we go out to get the, the lending. Is it difficult to find people to come into the sort of the space? I mean, does social housing have an image problem? I appreciate there's a level of snobbery around that, mm. but, but is there an identity crisis? You know, what you've talked about is a lot of commercial housing yeah. and social housing. To me, it sounds very much like it's housing. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that's something even you and I can discuss about how we brand the sector? Is it is it just the housing sector? Because when we start to talk to interims, most of them, I'd say, are unaware of who we are, of the teams and the size and the scale, the complexity of the teams that we operate in. Mm -hmm. And when they start hearing about who we are, what we do, the technical challenge remains. We're talking big numbers. Some of our teams turn over in excess of half a billion pounds a year. Oh, wow. They have asset bases approaching 30 billion pounds. So that's four or five times the size of Royal Mail. That's, these are significant, complex organisations. They, when they hear that, that's fantastic. That's brilliant. I want to get involved. The biggest thing for me is once we get them into the sector, they all have an affinity with the end product, which they've never had before. And what I mean by that is you have the direct impact on somebody's life and the way that they live and what they can do moving forward. That's not the same when you've just got a product that you're trying to get over a shelf or, or you know, pass on to something. It's not the same affinity. So we do see a lot of people attracted to it. It is, however, going back to your question, quite hard for me to, it, it, I need at least 20 minutes, half, half an hour, every single time I approach somebody from outside the sector to explain who we are before I even explain the role, because they need to understand who the organisation is. That, that, can be, that can be interesting at times. It, it does seem that you know, the, the sector itself could work on its PR and communications, right? 
that is something we've been discussing for the last day and a half at the finance conference. The sector as a whole doesn't do enough to promote itself. And I think that the National Housing Federation, Chartered Institute of Housing, some of the, the, the kind of uh, the, the voice of the sector has a lot more to do. I think they always view it, and this might be an unpopular opinion, I think they view PR as, as explaining it to, to Whitehall, to the politicians about what we're doing, not necessarily to people outside of our space. But those are the people that are coming in to run those teams. So let's tell them what we do. Let's tell them how big we are. Tell them how exciting the, the space is. That's, that's something that, okay, I can do that with a, a few interims that I speak to, but it needs to be done on a bigger, more national scale than that. So Rashwell, I hope this podcast can go some way to doing that for you. Thank you so it's right. been a pleasure talking to you. I'm really pleased that um, I've had the opportunity to um, spend time with you this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. As always, to those of you who have joined us, thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you next time. Um, if you could also subscribe, that would be enormously useful. I understand that we're very close to giving Peter Crouch a run for his money at the moment.